You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Jack Farley with Real Vision. Uh, I'm here with our managing editor, Ed Harrison. Uh, Ed, welcome. Yeah, thank you, and uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. So yeah, this is going to air on Thanksgiving Day, um, November 26th, but we're filming this on Tuesday, two days before. Um, so you know, if the uh, if the Dow goes back to 24,000, if there's a massive crash, uh, please, the people at home, you know, uh, take, uh, don't don't judge us too much um, if we uh, sound bullish. <laughs> yeah, do you have your Dow 30,000 hat out? Uh, <laughs> I, I was looking for one. I was talking to Ash about this. We we finally crossed over the Rubicon. Yeah, well, we need to get hats. Um, I think uh, I had a joke on Twitter that uh, Max bet me uh, that if the Dow went to 30,000, I would change um, my Hinge profile to a photo of uh, Jim Cramer, like partying in, in Miami. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so that's not the only special thing about the today's daily briefing is that we're filming it two days before. We're also, it's an, it's an AMA. We're taking questions um, from Real Vision members. So I, you know, I asked in the exchange, um, you know, what questions you have for Ed and, and for me. And I think, honestly, this is, these are the best questions that we've ever gotten for any AMA on the daily briefing. Um, Ed, I know you haven't even looked at these questions, so I'm going to be asking you the questions. I'm really excited for it. Yeah. And so, I mean, as we were saying right before we came on, we're going to divvy them up. You're going to put them out there. You can take half of them. I'll take, uh, you know, some of the ones that are obvious for me. And let's just see how it goes. Okay. Okay. Well, starting off, um, Jonathan Jessen asks, with Europe and U.S. entering a second wave of lockdowns, will equities have a repeat of their March performance? I think this question uh, is for you. Yeah, that is a good question. I'm, you know, I'm a much more, I'm a b better bond guy. Uh, let me put it this way: uh, just go from the bonds to the equity side of things. I think that uh, you know, bonds you can clip the coupons, but uh, when bad things happen from an economic perspective and defaults occur, then you know that's when you you, you know the separation between those who have done well and those who don't do well is made. I had a good conversation with Boaz Weinstein about this. So to the degree that th this particular lockdown uh, causes certain companies to uh, default or even potentially to have their, their, um, their numbers go much worse in terms of spreads, then you're going to see a, a massive reaction in the bond market. So there's a good potential for that to happen just because the bond market is very different than the equity market. I think the equity market might be able to power through this based on liquidity and a forward-looking approach as long as these companies uh, don't go to zero. So I think that the real answer is if a company goes to zero, uh, then the equity gets wiped out and the bonds default and therefore, um, you know, there are bad outcomes. But absent that, it's really hard to say what's going to happen over the short to medium term, because I don't really think 
that this particular wave is a long-term outcome. We know on the backside of it, we have the vaccine. So I'm going to have to punt on that, Jack, and uh, and say, w- really, we, we don't know what's going to happen. A lot of it is a liquidity-fueled uh, uh, rally. Uh, that's so interesting, Ed. I have a million questions, but the one that comes to mind is, you said at the very end, uh, I don't know if this wave will last. Were you referring to sort of the second wave or third wave of Corona or this the, the flood of liquidity that we've had? And, you know, when we're filming today, the Dow and the S&P are at all time highs. Yeah, I was thinking about the second wave you know, because uh, I was just talking to uh, to some investors, uh, Ch- Charles Gov uh, and one of his uh, one of his analysts at uh, Gov call. And they were talking about the vaccine coming out. And by this time next year, perhaps 75 percent of us are going to be vaccinated. So what we're going through right now as a second wave won't necessarily or actually in the United States, the third wave won't be repeated per se uh, when uh, when the next year comes around. That's so interesting. Um, I actually I have another question that just I want I want to I want to pick your brain, Ed. Um, which is that, you know, let's say that the vaccine uh, is administered to the bulk of the population. People begin to fly again. I mean, they're flying, but people begin to go on cruises again. Um, you know, oil is rebounding as people tra- travel all around the country. Is there a scenario where that actually could sink the S&P because all of this market capitalization that's been um, gathering in, in that index, which is, you know, as you know, tech dominated, um, has been going to the Googles, not just the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks, but the, um, you know, the Zooms and the and the Teslas as well that are sort of like thriving at this work at home economy. Yeah, I've thought about that, too. The concept that if you have a rotation, that the rotation is so violent that given the market cap weights, you have an overall uh, diminution of the S&P because the places, the stay at home companies, which were the largest market cap companies, they're really getting hammered uh, as a result of that. I think it's a possibility, definitely. So I wouldn't rule it out as a outcome from this particular uh, rotation, if that rotation occurs. And I think that it will occur at some point in time. Mm, interesting. Uh, so Jonathan Jessen actually asked a multi-part question. It was, it was in four parts. And we're not going to indulge you know every single one of his questions, but... Just to his last question, Ed, what is your outlook on commodities in 2021? Yeah, I don't I don't have a, a, a firm view on commodities, but I will say that commodities look good uh, because we're going to have the vaccine. We're going to have a reopening. And I think that we're already seeing that the numbers are starting to go up for oil. Copper actually preceded that. And a lot of other commodities. So I'm I'm positive on commodities uh, in terms of at least maintaining where they are. The real question is: there more upside, or has it already been priced in? So when we talk about bonds versus equities, uh, and then we think about commodities on top of that, I think that when you take a look through, you look through this particular wave, commodities will look through the wave, on, and on the other side, uh, things will be positive. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of uh, leads into the next question, because I, I think uh, commodities uh, thriving in 2021, that happens if there's a, a reflation, which is uh, a pickup in inflation. Um, so this next question comes from uh, Nin Nguyen. Um, Jack and Ed, 
uh, would, I'd love your take on the risk on and risk off factors that would allow one thesis to hold true versus another. Uh, I saw Rogers Insiders talk today, um, and it looks like there's a battle of narratives with the, the inflation or reflation narrative versus a flight to safety into bonds, uh, which presumably corresponds to a, a sell-off in equities. Um, so what, what do you think of that? Well, I was thinking this, this is a perfect place for you to step in yourself and, uh, and uh, defend your turf. I think this is something that's totally in your wheelhouse. What, what are your thoughts there, Jack? Um, I think I agree with all of the premises uh, of the question. I think um, a risk on event um, happens if capital floods into the stocks that are banking on a quick recovery. Um, you know, your cruises, airliners, um, oil, oil refiners, and the like. Um, I think it all comes down to the virus um, and to the uh, ability of the government to administer a vaccine. Um, I think the efficacy of the vaccine, oh, 90.9%. Oh, it's 95%. Oh, actually, we're 95% we're too. That's all great. And that, I think that's, you know, I think uh, what Stan Druckenmiller said is like a, a great day in the history of uh, mankind. Um, and I, I, I think that is wonderful news. Um, I think, though, I would rather sort of, I think it's a better scenario to have an 80% uh, efficacy rate and a, you know, a strong healthcare system that has a demonstrated track record of being able to deliver healthcare to, um, you know, a bulk amount of population rather than just people who walk through the door. Then say we have 95% efficacy, but I, I don't have a lot of confidence, to be honest, in the United States uh, healthcare system, um, which is sclerotic. It's the, it's the only... Uh, you know, major developed uh, world where uh, healthcare is not guaranteed um, by the government, whether that's through just the, um, you know, uh, uh, government authorities uh, like in the UK or it's sort of a public-private partnership like they have um, in, in other parts of Europe. Um, and yeah, I mean, to be honest, this uh, a girl um, who I have started seeing recently, so she got um, tested uh, in, for coronavirus over the weekend so she could see her family. And she went to a city MD and uh, Ed, t take a guess as to how long uh, it took her. How, how long did she have to wait in line? Let me guess, you know, because my uh, wife was doing the exact same thing uh, and uh, it took her two hours. Wow. Two, see, two hours is a lot of time. And when I got my test, I waited two hours and I thought that was a lot of time. Um, she had to wait eight hours. Wow. Huh? Eight yeah. hours. That is crazy. Yeah, so I'm, um, I, I'm not convinced that uh, the United States will uh, administer this vaccine with the rapidity and uh, the, comprehensive, the comprehensiveness that um, we sort of need. Um, and I, I don't like saying that. And I don't think that that is good for uh, risk assets. Incidentally, I talked today to um, uh, Teddy Valley uh, per Valley Global. He's a macro fund who invests in, in all sorts of assets. Um, and he, uh, he is a big believer in the reflation trade. And he is um, investing heavily in energy stocks. Um, and interestingly, you know, he's someone who uh, has been very bullish on gold and Bitcoin. He's been proven right. But he's actually kind of uh, taking his foot off the gas pedal on gold and Bitcoin. So that airs on Tuesday because, you know, and they, they call me the plug. Um, so that Teddy's actually up something like 30 or 40 percent this year, which is a lot. But the, I think one of the only fund managers who's up more 
is Boaz Weinstein. So, and that airs on Friday. Right. Which people at home will be tomorrow. Excellent. Hey, and you, okay, two, two thoughts on that. Uh, thought number one is one of the biggest problems with the U.S. healthcare system in this regard is what I would call the inability to keep the virus in check. If we had as many tests as we do now, but we had one third the number of cases, maybe uh, your girlfriend would have waited an hour or 30 minutes instead of having to wait eight hours. It's because the virus has spiraled out of control in the United States. We have so many cases that she had to wait as long. That's my first thought. Maybe you can answer that. But the second thought I had, which is interesting, is when you talk about risk on versus risk off uh, based upon efficacy and things of that nature, it makes me think about Asia. And when you, when you think about asset allocation, who's going to uh, to come out of this on the other side in a positive way uh, in terms of your allocation of assets? I know Jeremy Grantham was talking about emerging markets. Well, emerging markets Asia uh, in particular, maybe that's the that's the answer there. Yeah, um, definitely. It's it's a really interesting question. And then it, it becomes more complicated because you ask, well, what is risk on? It's, it's equities. Okay, well, is it uh, FANG? Because if there's a risk-off event in terms of bad news about the virus, that actually could be good for FANG because of work from home and the te technology stock. So it's very complicated. But um, I want to move on to a question from Oliver Anderson, um, who, who asks, this is, this is a good question, Ed. You're going to like this. RV began, Real Vision began as a platform for conversations that were generally quite wonky in finance, sort of inside baseball especially against the backdrop of the wider and generally terrible financial reporting landscape. My guess is that this is what has set you apart and earned Real Vision such an incredibly loyal following for very bright, engaged individuals. Now, as you're starting to reach a broader audience, as well as one that isn't bringing the same baseline understanding of markets, the need to make content that caters to this new audience's needs I'm sure can come into conflict with the interest of your original audience. How are you navigating scaling up Real Vision with keeping the content that makes you so special in the financial media space? Yeah, that is a great question. And on the fly, uh, what my answer is, is the question. Also, I'd love to hear your answer to this because this is how I'm thinking about it. You know, dumbing things down, that's not my idea of a good time. You know, if I'm going to have a conversation with someone, I want to have the same conversation that I would have uh, naturally, irrespective uh, and I, I have very great confidence in Real Vision uh, viewers to be able to pause and you know ask the right questions, uh, look it up on the internet, et cetera, whatever it might be. The big filler for that, however, is uh, you know these explainers, these pieces by the likes of Stephen Van Meter, which or and actually Rogers doing something like that on the pro tier, which basically says, okay. Uh, if you watch the real video and you only got 50%, 75% of what's being said, we can break it down for you in a way that will get you to 90, 95%. Uh, I think those are great. And that's uh, the that's one of the ways forward for us in terms of making this work. Um, but I don't think dumbing it down is, is one of the ways forward. The second thing I would say, Jack, is that we do need more content for other people. I know a plethora of people who they don't really care about uh, hardcore finance at all, but they do care about the political economy. They do care about uh, public policy. And I think that being able to provide 
you, uh, you, a more expansive view that, than just hardcore finance uh, in terms of, you know, I talk, the perfect example is this Charles Kennedy interview that I did. He talked about venture capital in the healthcare system. I think those kinds of things are important. Haley talked to someone uh, about uh, public charter schools. I think that was also an important conversation. It's not in the wheelhouse of what we used to be, but I think it is something that is important in terms of thinking about the political economy. And, uh, and so I hope that we can continue to do that. So that, that's my answer, Jack. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of what you said, I agree with. I think explainers are really important because we have these videos like Russell Napier talks to Brent Johnson and it is very complicated. You know, I'm watching it and, you know, I, I don't have a, a deep uh, background in finance, but I am watching it very closely because I'm sort of making um, the charts and, and writing the chapters, writing the copy. Um, and, and, you know, even a, a few things go over my head. So I can imagine people who are, you know, watching things and they have a job um, and they, they're busy with their lives and with their families. They don't have time to delve into it with as much depth as I do because, you know, Real Vision is my job. Um, so I think I think explainers are really important. I think what uh, Stephen Ed Meter does is great, and I think we should uh, definitely expand that. I think that, that is key. Um, what what you said with regards to uh, sort of widening the funnel, which is a mm -hmm. phrase that we use a lot at Real Vision, um, in terms of covering topics in the political economy, um, as well as well as uh, social issues and, and how they intersect with markets. Um, I think that's really important. I I, I think though. Uh, one, one, another thing is that we're going, going to get a lot of people to come on the platform um, from crypto, which is mm. our latest um, offering. It's something that Ash is working on with Ral. Ral's very keen on it. Um, and I think, you know, with Bitcoin sort of testing, it's, it's approaching the, the $20,000 level. Uh, I think there, there could be some renewed interest in that. So I think you know, Ed, what I want to focus on with you is sort of to how, like, people who come to the Real Vision for Bitcoin because they love Bitcoin content, how can we interest them and say, oh, actually, well, you like crypto. Well, here's something, here's a piece about debt. Here's a piece about uh, equities. Here's, here's why, you know, something that you've wondered your entire life, but you never knew the answer to it. Here's why. Um, so I think that is, that is a project that uh, we'll focus on as well. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, and you know, the integrative approach is, is good. I mean, all of these things are, are not seen in isolation. There's overlap. You can get a whole collective and definitely crypto is a part of that. So we have to be asking ourselves, what is it that's happening on Real Vision Classic that has overlap with crypto? And every week we should be offering something on both sides that flips between the two. Gold and silver certainly has some applicability. Digital currency, whether it's central bank digital currency or Bitcoin, they're in a related monetary policy, totally related to totally. what's happening with uh, crypto. So I definitely see it from that perspective, uh, really getting a, a huge integrated approach. Okay. Uh, Ed, I sort of raised up crypto at the end 
because it's what I believe, but I also raise it sort of just as a little, uh, a little segue to this fantastic question from Alan Azar. A thought experiment. You're a supervillain bent on ruining my day. Hypothesize how you would drive down the price of Bitcoin substantially, if not destroy it entirely. Extra points if you answer while stroking a white cat. <laughs> I think this is for you, Jack. This is your question, 100%. The, the supervillain, I like it. Well, um, I think that Bitcoin thrives uh, at a period of monetary uncertainty um, when it looks like the pre printing presses will uh, go on all night and never end. So I, I don't know, the Fed uh, having a Volcker, Paul Volcker moment and raising rates to 16 18%. That could put a, a damper on Bitcoin. What do you think, Ed? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's liquidity and, and then there is store value. And I think that over time, uh, cryptocurrencies are becoming a better store of value. Uh, however, when it comes to liquidity concerns, uh, everyone wants to get into an asset like the U.S. dollar where uh, liquidity is greater. And so in times like uh, March, you know, Bitcoin will go down with everyone else. But over time, to the degree that you have more dollars chasing fewer goods, and part of that's because of the base, you know, the monetary base, but uh, much of that's definitely going to have to be because you still have velocity of money where banks are, are, are uh, adding to the credit uh, portfolio. I think that's a case in which you could get more, you can get the gold higher, you can get Bitcoin higher. And it all depends on the currency system and, and how, how it atomizes. I think that over time, the dollar standard is probably going to break down to a certain degree. And central banks are going to get in there and they're going to stop other media of exchange to uh, competing with the dollar, like gold, w which was banned outright during the Great Depression in the United States and remained that way. You couldn't hold gold as a private citizen in the U.S. for years and years. So I think that, uh, you know, the more you see credit as opposed to the more you see actual base money, that's where you're going to see uh, Bitcoin do well in the exact same way that you've seen gold do well. So what, does, what do you have to do in order to uh, you know, make Alan Azar's worst nightmare come true? Do you have to take away the punch bowl as, as the Fed reserve, uh, hike rates, stop QE, um, you know, don't, don't support uh, regional banks at all? Um, well, you know, I would say... Uh, we I'm thinking about this conversation I had with Charles Gobb earlier today, and he was talking about uh, a similar t topic to what Jay Pulaski talks about, which is this tripolar world where you have regional deepening in uh, the Americas, in Europe, and in Asia. And in Asia, uh, it's as a result of bilateral uh, currency uh, arrangements, as opposed to using the U.S. dollar to have trade between Taiwan and Korea, they actually use their local currencies as a result of that. And the upshot of all that is that if the dollar is not needed from a liquidity perspective by large swaths of the emerging markets and non-U.S., then it ceases to be 
as valuable a currency and therefore it goes down in value. So when you think about Bitcoin, it could be a very different outcome for Bitcoin versus Asian currencies or versus the US dollar or versus the euro. It all depends on, I think, how this currency regime shakes out. So that's my thinking is that if you really want to be the super villain, then you want, uh, if you're in Asia, the super villain is where the Asians abandon the dollar and they start trading with one another in their own currencies and they allow those currencies to appreciate relative to the dollar over time. That would be poison for Bitcoin as expressed in those currency terms. Mm, mm. That's, that's uh, really interesting, very advanced thinking. Um, I want to talk about that more, but I have to go on to um, uh, C. Jung Park. He's got a question that it's, it just has Ed Harrison written all over it. Um, <laughs> any tips on learning a new language or slash getting better at a language? Yeah, I, I used to, I had this, uh, when I was young, I had uh, some friends of mine and, uh, you know, we were trying to uh, create this new method of learning. I think my method of learning is basically, you know, recreate the environment of being in the country as much as you possibly can. And in today's world, it's so much easier than it was before. Back then, it would be about trying to meet people from that country and having as many conversations with them as possible, uh, listening to the news over shortwave radio in those countries, and then uh, listening to uh, movies in those languages. But today, you could live and breathe as if you're in another country. Uh, it, let's say that you wanted to learn uh, Chinese. You could really... Uh, get the Chinese news, you could get Chinese podcasts, you could uh, talk to uh, people over the internet in Chinese. So any, it's really all about uh, using the fact that you can almost live inside the country without actually having to go to the country. Uh, and, that, and for me, that's when you start thinking in the language. That's, what, that's how a language gets embedded into your mind. Okay. Uh, I think that was you uh, a complete answer to Shi uh, Hong's uh, second question, or like the second half, which was how do you get better? Say like, oh, I've been you know taking Korean for like a year now. I just I want to take it to the next level, and you know you kind of you live in the next level, Ed. But like for someone like me who I don't know any French, how do I get started? Yeah. Uh, oh, you know um, th that that's a good question. I would say for me the easiest thing, the easiest hurdle to do is to do something that you've already done in your own language or a language that you know and and do it in that foreign language i i i read a book in french uh that i had already read in german before and because i'd already read it in german i didn't need to go to the dictionary over and over again uh i actually almost you know all i had to have was a basic vocabulary and immediately just through uh, circumstance, and it's the exact same way when people are talking to you. Uh, I, I could tell from context what the uh, what they were saying without having to understand it. And that's how you learn in in the real world is is you kind of learn half the words through context. People are talking to you that way. So that's what I would say to do. Watch a movie uh, that you've already seen in English, but watch it in the foreign language. Nice, nice. Okay. Uh, just just for the viewers at home, um, Ed speaks. English, uh, German, Spanish, 
French, and Swedish. Am I did I am I missing any? Yeah, uh, I think that that is in Dutch. Dutch and Dutch, of course. Um, great. Okay, moving on to the next question. This is from James Rosenthal, who is a certified super user on the exchange. He makes uh, excellent videos, uh, very well produced, and he actually is himself a f futures trader. So he he's kind mm -hmm. of like the uh, he's a triple threat. Uh, that's his nickname, James Triple Threat Rosenthal. Okay, so this is from James. What quote? What type of guys are Jack Farley and Edward Harrison around the Real Vision circle? Like clearly, Ed might be the quote three quarter zip guy. Jack could be the quote the young gun with huge potential. Ash is clearly the crypto guy. Roger is quote the lush wino. Dot dot dot. <laughs> Would love to know a bit more about what you guys are like outside of all this economic talk, cheers and keep crushing life. Thank you, James. <laughs> let, me, let me answer for you. This is what I would say, uh, Jack. I, I'd say two things. One, we already know about your, your nickname, your new nickname, Hollywood, uh, that you, you, not only are you the young gun, you're bringing it in a, in a way that is like, you know, a certain like pizzazz, a certain flash, if you will. You know, Hollywood definitely embodies that. The second thing I think that people don't know is, and I think we were talking about this with regard to uh, Tyler, is that once you get to a certain level, you know, height-wise, it's like an exponential increase in the number of people who ask, are you a basketball player? You uh, are, are well above that level. I'm sure that, you know, more people ask you if you play basketball than ask me, especially at my advanced age, if I play basketball. Uh, People don't know because uh, you know they only see you from here. But you are the giant of uh, of real vision, if you will. Yeah, I am uh, like six four and a half. Um, so I generally, you know, round up to six five. But uh, sometimes, if I want to sort of, you know, don't make too big of a splash, I round down to six four. Um, I think I think the only person who's taller than I am at Real Vision is uh, Ralph Powell. He was, he was very tall. Oh, yeah. You th is he taller than you? That oh, is interesting. Yeah. yeah, I did not know that. Now, listen, this is here's a good story for you on that, Jack. And you can tell me who I am after after I tell you the story. So I these friends from the Netherlands, uh, where everyone's really tall, I think the average height is like six foot there. And these guys, they were all like six foot six. But apparently there's a clause somehow where you can avoid, uh, you know, forced national service. This was years ago when they had forced national service. If you're above a certain height, I think the height was two meters tall. So these guys, they would like for literally a month or however long it was before they got measured and weighed uh, to go into the service, they would lie down as much as possible. They would not, they would try not to like to be vertical so that they could lengthen their body out as much as possible. And if they went and immediately got uh, measured, uh, they could potentially squeeze out that extra half an inch. Wow, that's incredible. Can I ask, why is it that if you're above a certain height, you're exempt from the military service? Yeah, I, I think that's for our, our audience to explain, because I have no idea. All I know is the stories that they told me about it, but maybe a, a, one of our Dutch listeners can tell us uh, why the hell was that the case. And also, I think that they don't have the compulsory military service anymore. I think that's been banned, uh, but that, that's how it was, you know, 20 years ago. Interesting. Um, yeah, so... James, uh, maybe we'll have to, Ed and I will have to come into the exchange and uh, 
you know, to, to really um, let, let our guard down. Because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're still on the, the professional channel, so we can't, we can't uh, give up too many of our, of our secrets. I will say that Ed is, um, he's like one of those guys where you meet him, and he's like very intellectually curious and like just devours uh, news, like analysis, books, everything. So he's like, you know, what, what a nerd typically is in terms of like being very intellectually motivated, but he also is a very cool guy. And if you, uh, I don't know if he ends any of the daily briefings like this, but on frequently on our calls, uh, editorial calls at 5 p.m., he's like, all right, guys, uh, I'm going to end this call a little bit early. I'm going to go have a beer. <laughs> so, you know, Ed, Ed is like, he's a very cool uh, guy. And he has that nice balance of, um, you know, very intellectually uh, active while also being chill. Excellent. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate that. Anytime, anytime. All right, let's move on to Sam Colt, who is also a super user in the exchange. Um, how do you guys filter news? And I think both of us can answer this question, but you definitely um, are sort of the expert, and then I'll show how the sort of oh, yeah, okay. struggling along. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, for me, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for preponderance of uh, of narrative and difference of narrative, if you will. Uh, so usually I, I use my international filter, so I, I try to read a broad sweep of different stuff. You know, I read the South China Morning Post. I read one or two dailies from all of the European languages I speak, and then I, I look at the news in the U.S. And I try not to watch TV. I usually I, I usually get all my news from written. And I'm looking to see what kind of narratives they're saying and get a composite picture of what what's being said. Uh, and, you know, there are little nuances in the way that people say things based upon what country it's in. And as a result of that, you get a much better composite picture. You get a sense of, you know, where there is uh, consistency and then where there are differences. And, and so that's how I, I look at my news. I think that's the most important factor. Interesting. Um, could you say in English speaking papers, what are some of your favorites, some of your go tos? Yeah. So I think uh, Financial Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, Barron's. I do read the Post and the uh, um, the New York Times. Did I say again? Um, so I think in terms of non-business, I probably only read the Post and the New York Times mostly. Uh, in the UK, actually, I read the uh, Times of London, I read the Guardian, and I read the Telegraph. So wow, that gives me. And you know, by the way, those are very different in terms of their their view, and to, uh, and so I think it gives me a good wide swath across the political spectrum, uh, and, and that's what I'm trying to get, so that I'm not trapped in in one universe of thought. Not trapped in one universe of thought. Um... That's beautiful, Ed. You really are very well read. And I think uh, there aren't a lot of people who are truly well read and who always, you know, tr tr like I definitely am trapped in one universe of thought or, or two universes of thought. You know, I've got, I'm, you know, one of the great things of working at Real Vision, I've got my Bloomberg terminal here. Mm. So I kind of just, most of the news I take is through that. I also, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, FT, um, they're great. But what I love about, just reading it on the terminal is I can click on it and it's a news story that like you can get on bloombergnews.com but then it says like click this for the analysis and it will take you to some you know some futures chart or something like that so you know a lot of what I do at real vision is um, sort of making the charts so if like Mike Green says oh this like Bermuda swaption is uh, indicating this 
like I'm the one who has to find out what the hell that means. Um, so yeah, okay. So so I think that's pulled- an amazing thing because it goes back to uh, what you were saying about you're like I'm no finance expert, but actually relative to most people, you are because your uh, wheelhouse is about taking news, which is actually predominantly financial in nature because you're talking about Bloomberg and then connecting it to markets and how they function. So automatically, every it's almost as if your knee-jerk reaction is that, okay, so how do I trade that, right? I mean, yeah. as yeah. soon as you get the news piece, immediately, because of just the way that you consume it, that's that's what's going on. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yes, and this makes me think of the classic thing that you and you, I, and Ash talk about, which is the as amid phenomenon, which is X event happens, Pelosi doesn't sign this. Um, it's announced this earnings do this. And then there's some trading action. And then the journalist does, you know, they don't know what's going on, not because they're not smart, but because no one knows what's going on. Right. And then they have to confabulate these two narratives and intertwine them. So they use the word as. So, uh, you know, markets crash as Treasury Secretary Mnuchin indicates that he won't roll over these federal emergency programs, despite the fact that you don't really know. I mean, you know, you know, if it, it was announced at 248 and then you see a big spike or a big crash, but it's come on, it's 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 an infinite number of coins that are flipping throughout the, the ether. And, you know, let's talk about that in terms of yesterday, what happened there, because I was reading something. I can't remember what it was now, but it said that immediately after Yellen was announced as the Treasury Secretary, markets spiked up, but then they ended the, the day less high than they were when they spiked up because of the, the announcement. So what are we supposed to take away from that in terms of, is, is the Yellen announcement moving markets? I mean, it moved them temporarily, but does that have any durable impact? That's a good point. I, I think the people who believe that this stuff actually matters and when I say matters, obviously it matters in the long term because the real world does shape the financial economy. But to think that it, it does have an impact in terms of the price action, they would say maybe, well, it would have gone down less. But then at that point, you know, what are, what are you even saying? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I just tend to uh, I, I look at people like Tony Greer and I think that he has a much better handle on thinking about trading the markets than I do. I'm I'm much more of a fundamental guy, me too. and I, I, you know it's difficult for me to operate in that universe. So uh, all hats off to him, and that's one of the reasons that I enjoy having him on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, um, definitely. So you talked about um, Tony Greer; he has a better framework for trading than you do. Actually, one of Sam Colt's uh, last question um, is about sort of how we trade, but they're, they're not that personal. So the, the questions are, first stock that you bought, and then the second question is, what's the worst trade you ever made? Yeah. Um, I think the worst trade I ever made was a unhedged derivatives out of the money uh, uh, call um, in, lo- in 
size that was like, I mean, the, the you know, it's it's like trade sizing. This was like completely disproportionate to the size of my portfolio. This was during the aftermath of the internet bubble, in fact. Uh, you know, having already uh, benefited from uh, the internet bubble bursting, you know, my hubris allowed me to go in that direction. So that's the uh, that's the worst call I ever made. The, this, in terms of the first uh, trade I ever did, it's hard to say. It's been so long now. I don't know what it was. Uh, it could have easily, just as easily, have been short as it was long. To be honest, because at that point, I think I was very skeptical, uh, and uh, and so I might have gone in on the short side, but I, I just don't remember. Wow, that's uh, rare for someone to have their first short be a uh, first trade be a short. I think I too sort of have that bug in you, and that I kind of like um, going short something. For me, it would be via put option. But Jim Chanos talks about how, like, if you're a short seller, you're born a short seller. And I don't think you and I are sort of pure short sellers, but we we have that uh, we have that skeptics gene, you know. Yeah, and I was talking to someone. I actually I think it was Boaz Weinstein who was telling me uh, he was talking about uh, he's not able to see the fraud in front of him the way that Jim Chanos is able to see it. You know, some people, they're able to uh, they, they're able to see that. You know, when I look at, uh, you know, I was short a lot of the home builders and I was short like Washington Mutual uh, back during the, uh, the yeah. uh, housing bubble days. Uh, but, you know, none of those, I wasn't thinking fraud. Uh, Jim Chanos, on the other hand, he, he's seeing accounting irregularities. He's seeing companies like Enron and WorldCom. He's saying, wait a minute, hold on. There's something seriously wrong with this company. Uh, it's fraudulent, and I'm willing to uh, put my money behind it. Uh, that, that's a really tough uh, racket, uh, something that I, uh, I, I take my hat off to him on because not everyone can do that. Yeah, and it's also it becomes a matter of semantics with, okay, they accounted for this in a certain way, um, and that was arguably unethical. unethical. Um, you know, it did not conform to precedent. It pissed off the regulators. Um, but it, it really isn't a proven fraud uh, until the CEO is, you know, taken out in handcuffs. I mean, not, not right? Yeah, well, you know, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't know if you know the history, but back in the day under Jack Welch in GE, they used to beat their earnings estimates by a penny every quarter, it seemed like. It was just like, you know... Uh, and of course, obviously, the given math, you know that the uh, the potential that this is really going to happen isn't actually. It's mathematically impossible that they could beat by by a penny every single quarter uh, relative to chance. So it was clearly that they were massaging the numbers, and then lo and behold, you know, years later, GE falls apart. How much of that was a, a representation of the culture that was being built that was suggested by the beat by a penny, a quarter type of mentality? Is it that uh, Jack Welch was building a fraudulent uh, um, empire in the sense of it was built on uh, um, smoke and mirrors? Or uh, was it that... Uh, Somehow it just uh, the world changed and GE wasn't able to catch up with it. And, and then my biggest question on that is how different is that to what Jim Chanos is talking about? Because to me, it's uh, the first part that is easier to, to, to see 
than the second part. You know, like Tesla, you can make a, a case that uh, they're overvalued based upon X, Y, and Z. But to say that, you know, there's an outright fraud that's going on is a lot more difficult to be able to discern. Definitely. Um, God, I have so much to say to that, Ed. It's so thought-provoking. Um, number one is uh, with regards to GE. I think I remember, I forget if this was in a book or an article, but it was basically, it was one of the accounting shenanigans. It was a, a sale leaseback where they basically would sell, I forget the name of it, but it's like the thing that you walk on when you try and get onto a plane. Like, you know, it's, it's an av, uh, right, aviation right. industrial thing. Or... Um, exactly, jetway. Yeah, they would, so they would sell those um, to business people, to businesses, and then lease them back from the businesses. So in the short term, they get cash from that. Um, and it, it, but really, they have a hidden uh, liability. And, and that's what Jim Chano says. It's like um, talking about IBM, how they cut way down on uh, research and development in order to juice their earnings, which, hey, you know, they're business. They've got shareholders. They've got to make money, you know. Um, but then they have all these acquisitions. So what he's really saying is, uh, you know, their acquisition is basically their R&D. Um, so they're, they're sort of, you know, having them be uh, one-time charges um, when they're not. Another uh, uh, example that comes to mind is AIG um, with Hank Greenberg. You know, obviously mm. AIG imploded and it didn't go bankrupt, but it, um, you know, it's it not the company. It yeah, <laughs> it's not the company it once was. Um, and so it imploded in 2008. But even before that, in 2000, um, it had to uh, radically restate earnings because it was doing the same thing that, uh, Jack Welch was where it was its earnings would grow at 15% every year. And honestly, I think like, I mean, you would know this because you actually were in the markets at this time. Um, but this is from what I read. It kind of seems like that was a little bit less of a scandal to massage your numbers before Enron. And then when Enron happened, there was Sarbanes-Oxley's and there was this huge oversight of, of auditors that, uh, you know, actually suddenly took their jobs very seriously. Right. Yeah, I, I, it definitely was the case. I mean, I, as I recall, it was just like clockwork. They could do this. Uh, you know, throw the kitchen sink at the number uh, uh, in a way that, you know, uh, from an accounting perspective to beat that number. That was all it was all about is is just doing whatever it ne you needed to do to get, you know, one penny more. Um, and uh, ultimately, the kinds of things that you did, uh, it accumulates over time. If you're if you're doing that on a consistent basis, and and the delta is always to the upside, uh, get, trying to get to a number as opposed to to massage down. That's going to catch up to you five years down the line, ten years. But it, it takes a long time for it to catch up. And it sounds like Jim Chanos is saying the same things happening with IBM right now, and he thinks that it's catching up with them in the in the near future. Absolutely. And Jim Chanos says that he rarely shorts something because it's overvalued. Because if something's overvalued, it could get a lot more overvalued. Right. He, he shorts something because he thinks there's either a fraud going on or he thinks that there's going to be a catalyst um, that's going to trigger like an earnings restatement. And then that will sort of um, unwind the day's chain. Yeah, all very interesting stuff. Yeah. I yeah. mean, this, for me, that if, if you think about uh, markets in terms of macro and micro, uh, that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of micro. That's where it's really interesting. Uh, and it's completely different than the world of, of macro, which is global economy, commodities, things of that nature. Definitely. Um, well, Ed, thanks so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this. You know, I love any time I get to host the daily briefing, but I think this AMA was especially fun for me. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. And uh, let's do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. And uh, I'd also like to thank um, all of our users who asked the questions um, through the Real Vision Exchange. Um, if you think that you know this episode was was good, um, I think part of the reason it was good was because you guys asked such uh, excellent questions. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.